0: Welcome to The Atticus Report, the podcast about music that's good for something. On this episode of The Atticus Report, we stay right here at home in Austin, Texas, as we visit with songwriter-producer Stephen Doster about his latest release, Arizona. I'm your host, Rick Busby. We've got a great show, so stick around. We'll be right back after the musical break. Turns on
1: Sunday with the prayer to the living end. We hope to someday. off on friday checks the mail calls a friend small talk over dinner goes in a night Things cleans the house, washes the car, red is for the evening, meets with buddies at the local bar, drunk in conversation, of all the things you're gonna do someday, the grass is always greener, but the smoke is always blue.
0: back to The Atticus Report. That's the stunning title track of Stephen Doster's remarkable album, Arizona. Stephen's going to be joining us in just a few moments to talk about the record and his activities in 2015 and what he's got planned for 2016. I'm very excited about this particular episode of The Atticus Report ever since we began talking about doing this show. I've been looking forward to this episode. I know y'all are going to really enjoy talking with Stephen, hearing his stories about... How Arizona came to be. Plus, he's been a busy guy. Throughout 2015, he had a great year, did some touring, produced two new projects, one for Devin Jake, a folk Americana artist, and one for a Scottish rocker named Mike Smith. We're going to hear a little bit about those probably along the way. Mostly, we're going to be focusing on Arizona. I'm a big collector of music, as you guys know. This is one of the best records I've ever listened to and had the pleasure of experiencing in my entire lifetime. And I put it up there with the big ones. Now that, that might embarrass Stephen a little <laughs> bit to say that, but I am a fan of this record. That's one of the reasons why I've been very excited about this conversation today and getting a chance to talk with him deeper about these songs on Arizona and about what he's been up to. So without further ado, Stephen Doster, welcome to the Atticus Report.
2: Ah, it's great to be here.
0: So how have you been doing?
2: I've been great. I, I did have a wonderful year in 2015. It was a, just started off with a bang. With the the record had just gotten out, um, and uh, it's always nice to do something and have it well received. Yeah. Well, I should tell our listeners also that
0: Stephen's being a little modest. When 2015 began, Arizona found itself at the top of the end of year best of. 2014 lists at the Austin Chronicle with Jim Caligari and at the Austin American Statesman with Peter Blackstock. Both of these gentlemen, even though Arizona came out really kind of, came out kind of late in 2014, in November of 2014, I believe, and we'll talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the reasons for that release date here in a little bit. Uh, but the record was very well received, very quickly went to the top of these lists, got a lot of great attention uh, behind it, and it's been a busy year since then. It capped off at the end of the year. You wind up being inducted into the Texas Songwriters Association, Music Legends Hall of Fame, along with members of the Los Gonzo band, and Shake Russell as well. So great company. I think in the, in the middle of all that, you went to South Africa. We talked about that on, some of the, on the debut episode of mm-hmm. "The Atticus Report. And uh, wow, man, busy schedule. You are you, like they say about you, this is the thing that, that a lot of people will say about Steven Doster. He is Austin's most ubiquitous musician. He literally pops up everywhere as a sideman, as a producer, as a co-writer. He also is a co-founder of Guitars for Swaziland. Busy guy. He's also the co-host here on the Atticus Report. Today, he's going to be in the interviewee's chair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But we're really excited about doing this particular episode. So Stephen, why don't we start with Arizona, the title track that we just heard. I know yes. you and I have talked about this on a few occasions and everything. Kind of tell us, you know, where that song came from, what was it why was it chosen as sort of the central metaphor for
2: this record? Well, I had the the song in my head for a while, and um, was trying to find a place for it. And uh, the story that it ended up uh, telling is a story of a person, a young young person I was envisioning. Uh, she's a woman, and she's living somewhere where she's uh I was picturing an urban type surrounding. And they, like like we all do, we, we have our dreams and dreams of being in another place sometimes. And uh, Arizona itself, it could have been anywhere. It could have been, been a, I believe I've heard you describe it as a El Dorado or...
0: Right, right. But yeah. like to me, it's like a um, it's like an idea of a place, a vision of some place that you want to be right. besides where you are. Yeah. It's an imaginary place, as yeah. it were, but that a concrete image of Arizona yeah. sort of brings certain kinds of images to our mind in archetype fashion. Mm-hmm. So it's kind
2: of like Arizona is whatever I want it to be. Exactly, and in, in, uh, it might've been that I'd been traveling a lot in the West to national parks and stuff with my family and we went, found a place that I'd like everybody to know about. If you get a chance in your lifetime to go there, it's called Havasu Falls. And if you, wanna, if you were to ask a child to paint a waterfall, uh, they might pick a blue, crayon and make lines on a piece of paper with it that's what the waterfall really looks like in real life it's just this vivid blue color with the most pure water you've ever uh you could drink the water you're swimming in and uh so maybe in the back of my mind i i had pictured this place as a paradise because it was uh it's at the bottom of the grand canyon (laughs) well
0: i i as you're speaking about this, I'm I'm thinking about my experiences listening to Arizona mm-hmm. and you know all through last year and even before the record came out. Mm-hmm. As you know, I spent a lot of time with it, and we've talked about this regarding the record that there's a real strong sense of place mm-hmm. and time. And as you move through these songs on Arizona, you're kind of in the present time, and then you're kind of being nostalgic and looking back at certain points in time, and mm-hmm. we're looking ultimately towards the inevitable end. Mm-hmm. So there's a time and a place factor, and I know the track that follows. Uh, Arizona on the record uh, River from a Dream Mm -hmm. that's a very personal story to you as well and has a lot to do with where you and your wife Melinda are living right now why
2: don't you tell us a little bit about how River from a Dream came about it was an incredible thing I was working a lot and uh, I was coming home at night and uh, I'd been on a working for week after week on some projects playing a lot of shows and uh, um, I had a started to have a recurring dream, literally. And, uh, um, I don't believe that's ever happened to me before. And in the dream, it was in, there was a real vivid color. I was on a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, it was like that. It was, it was like, a that kind of dream. And, uh, I asked somebody on the boat, like, where are we? And this is really cool. And uh, they said, I think we're in Nebraska. All the
1: houses are is now I can only meet the trouble she saw a white horn Time is on their side the Faith there is no cure Accusations fight Cars begin to thin But further on I drive but for the shape I'm in This notion is a lie A place in the sun
0: That's River from a Dream, from Stephen Doster's Arizona. It's a wonderful record, Jim Calligari of the Austin Chronicle and Peter Blackstock of the American Statesman both placed Arizona at the top of their respective year-end Best of 2014 lists. Blackstock hailed the album as an exquisitely crafted classic, calling it one of the best records our city has produced this year. And also mirroring Blackstock's praise, Calgary rated Arizona a four-star masterpiece containing one charmed melody after another. <laughs> and I could not agree more with both of those assessments from, from both those esteemed writers. Really nice. We talked a lot about Arizona before the record even came out. You know, I probably at this point in time, I probably listened to it more times than anybody but maybe you and James <laughs> at this point in time. But I've listened to it a lot and have lived with it and it has become a... Real classic, And I think one of the things that I respond to as a listener is this deep-rooted sense of place. These songs are, you can listen to them individually if you wish, but the real joy in this record is being able to listen to these songs all threaded together and see these themes emerging in and out. And I Found You, which is track four, I believe, uh, on Arizona, also has that sense of place and everything. And it also seems to kind of be a companion piece a little bit, maybe to River From a Dream. I know it's not Nebraska; mm-hmm. it's Blanco, Texas, actually, yeah. where you and Melinda moved to, and everything. Is that found you actually part of that, or is that derived from a different source?
2: Well, it feels to me like it is. I, I probably at the time I wrote it, uh, I wasn't thinking that. I was just writing and doing a piece. Uh, one one of the things we talked about that song is a it could be interpreted in other more ways than one. It could be a love song, and or it could be I found you, and, and the you is a nature <laughs> or, or a place in, in life, and I think it's a, a little of all those things.
0: You know, there's another aspect of that song. You told me the story about, I believe it's this song, that in the studio, y'all performed, you had a great band, and maybe you want to talk about your, your musicians on this record as well, but I think, you did isn't this the song where you told me y'all had, like, really worked on this over and over and over,
2: we kept playing it, and just to get the groove. And the more we played, the more we took away. And it's the old saying: it's not what you play, it's what you don't play.
1: And uh, less is more. Less is more. I I found you i
0: Truly a Transcendent Moment on the Stephen Doster Record, Arizona. That's I Found You. Stephen, that's one of my favorite tracks on the album as well. I have a lot of favorite tracks on this record, but one of the reasons that this, this song stands out to me in this performance is driven by George Reeves' bass playing in this song. Some of the best bass playing accompaniment I've heard on songs in recent memory.
2: George is outstanding, and uh, it was a great privilege having him on the record George is a uh, plane. It's like a master's course in bass. He's extremely melodic and it's his second nature to really drive it and rock it. Um, James started calling his parts on the record bass porn, <laughs> which I thought was very appropriate.
0: That is very appropriate.
2: Donnie Wynn on drums. I would met Donnie about many, many decades before he was playing with Robert Palmer. And I remember we sat up uh, and we talked about Ringo's star for about three hours. (laughs) And uh, the reason why Donnie's name is spelled D-O-N-Y is because he met Ringo and Ringo signed his drum head and he misspelled his name and spelled it D-O-1-N-Y and he said, that's it. (laughs) I've just changed my name officially. (laughs) And so Ringo is such a a beautiful, uh, everybody's, Favorite drummer, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite drummers of all time. We were talking about Hal Blaine earlier. People like that have just played such a big part in our lives. And yeah, you know, I put Donnie in that that kind of uh, conversation. He's a, one of the great drummers and. Well, Kevin
0: Lovejoy also played piano. I believe on the record, and I love that that breakdown mm-hmm. on the bridge oh, in man. "I Found You" is just so sweet and delicate. Just a it's, very elegant, beautiful piano line in there.
2: It is, and and Kevin Lovejoy is just so extraordinary in his talents. Is uh, when he plays music, he he's he's there. He's playing. He's such a musical person, generous, and uh, gives you everything he has. And uh, uh, one friend of mine was a. Uh, when he heard his performance on this record he said well kevin he's a he's a virtuoso on the piano he can play a billion notes or he can play three uh and he, he was loving his understated playing on on the album i think there's a lot of that going beautiful, on beautiful track just beautiful really track. thoughtful about what he plays yeah. you know uh
0: Another track, in fact, the track that follows I Found You is is really, I'm going to say this to our audience, it really is my favorite track (laughs) on Arizona. It's a song called Second Story Balcony. Mm -hmm. The female protagonist in that song reminds me somehow of the female protagonist sort of at the beginning of the record in Arizona, and it feels like that she's gone through this experience during this progress of Mm -hmm. this record, which is basically the middle of the record. And at the end of it, she seems to have found herself into a place of sort of tentative optimism but there's some hope in her experience and this particular track is brian Standifer plays a cello part on this track that's really kind of a feature feature instrument in this track it's just a wonderful wonderful track and it's a to me that's an addicting song i listen to that song over and over and over and brian's cello playing on that track is just hypnotic
2: thank you uh, brian Standifer has uh, played a big part in my life he's a, not only a great friend, he's just a great man. And I hear a lot of orchestral things in music and he's usually my first call.
1: Watching the setting sun from my second-story balcony. Behind what used to be Watching the setting sun From a second story balcony mm-hmm.
0: Second story balcony From Stephen Doster's Arizona Featuring the cello of Brian Standifer. Now, Brian was with you on Rosebud back in the 90s as well, wasn't he?
2: Right. That's when we first uh, started working together. Um, he had just moved from New Mexico, and I got a call from Brian, and uh, I was working with a friend who had had an accident, a cellist that had hurt his hand, and uh, I get a call the next day uh, about my friend having not being able to play and he said, no, I just called you. Someone told me that you use cello a lot in your music. And uh, and so it was a uh, synchronicity. It was kind of crazy that he would just call right then. And uh, we've been very close friends ever since. And uh, his work on Rosebud, too, is great.
0: Well, you have a lot of really good close friends, Stephen, who supports you in your projects. And you've done a lot of great work for a lot of people for a long time in Austin. And I know that the next track on Arizona, also a really cool thing. One, and this is where the album kind of takes a turn for me. It's like there's mm-hmm. one kind of sort of pop rock vibe going on mm-hmm. on side one, as it were, of Arizona. And then when you, if you flip the album over, the opening track on what would be side two, Enough for Everyone, is a completely different flavor than what came before and kind of sets a different tone for the second half of this record. I know on Enough for Everyone, I believe you had some, you had a, uh, Elias Hayslanger and Ephraim Owens, on on horns and there and what was the the female backup singer that that's Devon Gilliford Gilliford. and uh
2: I first worked with her and met her when I was doing producing the Uncle Lucius record and she came in and she had this uh quality that I don't see often in, in uh an absolutely completely relaxed singer and uh and it's uh she's just a fantastic vocalist and so uh Whenever I was using, I did a lot of harmony vocals on this record myself. And uh, but whenever I was looking for a certain thing, uh, she gets the call from me.
1: There's enough-
0: grooving horn charts there provided by Elias Heislinger and Ephraim Owens. Both of these guys, this is a very restrained kind of track chart that they're doing here on this particular song, but man, both these guys can wail. They are some of the best jazz musicians in Austin, Texas. Elias, known him for about 20 years now and have followed his career since the very beginning, and he is really, really proud of his progress. He's become just a stellar musician and band leader.
2: Absolutely, he has. And uh, again, it's uh, playing the song and and, and people... uh, Plan, the, plan their part Makes it happen Makes it happen, makes it happen,
0: absolutely You know, Elias is somebody we should have On the Atticus Report in the future Would love to have a jazz show with absolutely. him And talk yeah, about man. some Blue Note jazz Ephraim as well yeah. Yeah. Ephraim, great players, great players, both those guys They also feature on another track on Side 2 Which is a song about uh, The basketball legend uh, Pete Maravich
2: Pistol Pete One of my heroes growing up my sister went to LSU at the same time in that era, and so I heard about him all the time. And uh, I didn't know, had ever, I never got to see him play live, just uh, on television recordings of him. But uh, I thought he had a really cool name when I was a little boy. I'd hear about him. Pistol Pete. Yeah, find out who this he guy, guy is. Days. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, his his life was uh, over too soon in this world. But I think, while well, he was here is he very inspirational to people.
0: Absolutely, you know, the thing that's interesting about this particular song. A lot of the other songs feel like they're derived from a very sort of personal source to you, and I know because of the connection that you have to Pete Maravich, it also is too. But of all the songs on Arizona, this is the one that's kind of written about a third-person historical character, whereas you know the rest of the album is kind of populated with sort of you know semi-fictional characters, you know, kind of kind of thing is it Pete Maravich is a historical character. Can you tell us a little bit about what's it like for you as a songwriter when you're sitting down and you're thinking about writing songs about historical characters or fictional? I mean, uh, factual
2: historical things. Well, that was uh, it was almost like a exercise for me. I was uh doing a class with a bunch of songwriters and a group of people and uh Use those exact words uh, writing a song about a historical uh, figure, and so I said, "Well, who would I write about?" I thought about, and I he he came into my mind uh, immediately. Well, we should we
0: should let our listeners listen to the song because I really do think this is an excellent example of songwriting, to where in three short verses and a little bridge and a chorus hook and everything, you do a great job of distilling the life of a man down into a you know three minute plus song. It's a really remarkable thing, the details and the way that you framed them up. Uh, Excellent piece of songwriting, and why don't we give a listen to that with our listeners right now here on the Atticus Report. We're with Stephen Doster talking about his record, Arizona, and this is the track, Pistol Pete, about NBA legend Pete Maravich. We'll be right back after the musical break.
1: Born on a summer day Like a dream come true Daddy taught him basketball And he learned it through and through Finally, got the high school people who knew what he could do. Found set the world on fire. Shoot for LSU. LSU. Off the ticket roll. shatter never record that had ever come before the magic in his hands and teeth opening a door the hawks the jazz the celtics he gave us a little i
0: I love that section of the song, Steven. It's like, you know, we talk about Little Feet. We're both fans of Little Feet and Lowell George and everything in that particular section and break down that song. Sounds just so Little Feet to me, but I think about Little Feet, but also think about when they were in New Orleans and there's a New Orleans connection to this kind of song. It feels got that kind of New Orleans vibe and bounce to it, which, which reminds me, there's another song on the album, Maybe There's No One Like You, which I believe has been recorded before and has a New Orleans connection as well. Tell us about that.
2: Absolutely, uh, the song, has a second-line beat. This, this song, uh, Pistol Pete, and that's where Little Feet got it from, um, from the rich heritage of New Orleans music. And a really great honor for me in my lifetime was to get to sit at a piano with Dr. John and teach him my song, Baby, There's No One Like You, uh, which appeared on the Double Trouble record. And then the trumpet, uh, they brought in Willie Nelson to play the guitar solo for it. They didn't ask me. <laughs> I was okay with that. You're okay. <laughs> Willie took your part <laughs> yeah, that day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But uh, he was such an incredible person to sit and, and talk to about music, and his work speaks for itself. But it was the only song on the record that I uh, had been recorded before, and uh, that I came out of my work and my collaboration with. Tommy Shannon and Chris Layton, who I'm real proud just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Awesome, awesome, yeah. For and the you work had, with you, like what,
0: you had like three three songs on, yes, that, I, on the Double Trouble record? Yeah,
2: on that, on that record, and it's a record I wish more people would hear. It's a, just called Double Trouble, been a long time, and it was uh, probably thought of by a lot of people as their tribute to Stevie after he left, and they hadn't used that name, called themselves that, after the crash, they had started a band called Storyville, uh, one of the groups, and uh, I had written a song with uh, Malfred Milligan that they were pre- performing. So they found out about me as a writer, like that. But um, the song "Baby, There's No One Like You" for me is uh, kind of got a metaphysical a, feeling for me. It might sound on again on the like just a love song, but. Uh, it also, for me, represented, and this happened a lot during the writing of that album, of the Double Trouble record, because they were reflecting on the loss of their great friend, Stevie Ray Vaughan.
1: Deep in my heart I hold a place for you Where I can live. Feeling blue When I think of all the good times that we've had, makes me feel so very glad. People will come, people will go, in and out of the. A million stars fill the sky, baby, there's no one like you.
0: You know, Stephen, when you were telling me stories about this record in your time with Dr. John, when he was recording that track on the Double Trouble record, you mentioned the word metaphysical in the first... Set up here before the song. Didn't you have like an encounter? Would you tell me, Doctor John actually kind of got that aspect of the song, and he, the, it's kind of setting up a theme that's that's getting ready to reveal itself in full here on the record. That's been kind of playing under the surface as we're moving towards the end here. This song has a, a quality about it like you're singing to someone almost in the in the afterlife in a certain sense, and it kind of enters that metaphysical realm. And the songs that are kind of coming up are going to kind of carry that theme forward to its sort of inevitable end. So tell us about that 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 moment when when someone really get, another artist really gets the aspect of your of your
2: writing. Well, and in his case, he uh, he said that in and out of the blue speaks to me, and uh, he got the song and what it was about. And uh, when he p- performed it, he said, uh, "All right, I feel mystical. Let's cut this motherfucker." <laughs> and that was that, how was that went
0: that was the guiding principle there you go brother there you go well you know in, in the context of this song and everything there's some things that start happening in the record this is a brilliantly engineered record I want to say something mm-hmm. about that as well like this this is a this is a great sounding record. It reminds me of some of the best, you know, vinyl records from the 70s and everything. I could put it totally in that mix with those records and it would sound Thank totally you. at home. It's a very warm, very vintage sounding record. And I know you've been working you work with James Stevens at East Austin Recording Ear Studios there in Austin, Texas, which is where I recorded one of my records there. Mm-hmm. Thanks to you guys. Let's talk about James because he's got to be like an MVP utility player on this project for you.
2: Absolutely. Uh, James Stevens to me, he's a was a blessing in my life. Uh, I met him when he had a little studio in South Austin in a 16-track studio and uh, we started working together. Then I remember going into his house. He, the, he was recording and he had made his garage into a studio at the time before we built Ear. And I went into his house uh, and I saw his record collection and I said, I think I'm gonna get along with this guy just fine. He had all these great, all the Everly brothers, Roy Orbison, Neil Young, big star, and uh, had quite the collection. And that's a, and his brother was in the band Blind Melon. And so he had grown up in a musical family. Uh, his brother uh, is a Roger Stevens, the guitar player for that band. And now James is playing with them. When uh, one of his other things, he's playing uh, taking roger's part and doing some touring with him
0: and we should also tell our listeners that you know james is also the front man for the band moonlight towers one of austin's really really fine power pop bands and i know he he engineers and works with a lot of different artists out there as well and as you were talking about his brother and the connection back to blind melon i got to be thinking about oh there's another family connection here in the context of this record because this next song that we're going to talk about throwing the ball to me, this is the, the song on the album that is kind of maybe most rooted in a sense of family, and there's a sense of nostalgia and looking back and sort of uneasy things and a, and sort of a family history and everything, but these people are... These characters are finding a peace somehow in the midst of that. There's a lot going on in this song. It's a very subtle and brilliantly engineered track, one of the finest tracks on this record in terms of how it's assembled and crafted and produced and everything. You. Stellar track, man. Tell us a little bit about... Where that song? Am I off? Am I off base, or is this really where you were kind of coming from in this song?
2: It's exactly where I, I was coming from. It was a song that I wrote for my son and my father. And uh, my joke is uh, the smart gene sk- skips a generation. <laughs> my, my father and, and my son—they they both have a really wonderful. Uh, uh, they love being around each other and talking. And the uh, I was reflecting upon my one of the things in my life that was a consistent thing since I was a boy, and it was a simple thing, throwing the ball. And it was about uh, simply that, and it got me thinking about my father and his his history, the things he had to go through in life. Uh, He was in some big battles in World War II, and uh, he was at Bougainville and Guadalcanal and things like that, a little different than me. I never, I was never there and put through that. I forget what they call that generation. The greatest generation. That's right. But uh, of, of people that went through those sort of things. But so all those things started happening. You, we get older in life. We start, and as it would happen as this record goes on toward the end of it, I get more reflective hmm. about my family. And uh, I'm really glad I wrote uh, that song for them. Yes, yeah, so Stephen.
0: On this track, Throwing the Ball, there's also two other musicians that are perform on this particular track that are not anywhere else on the album. They're only on this particular track. So tell us about them.
2: That's right. Floyd Domino on piano and Marty Muse on pedal steel guitar. I chose both of them specifically for this song. Um, Floyd Domino's a very accomplished pianist. Marty Muse, a wonderful pedal steel guitar player. I love the pedal steel uh, so orchestral. And uh, I like it particularly in music that might not be country music. It's a, in the case of this song, I feel he lays a really nice spatial bed underneath the song. You
0: know, I've told you that before, that when I first started listening to the Arizona album at this particular track, I think I'd probably listen to it a dozen times or more and then one day called Jip and I'm like, is there a steel guitar in this track? Because it, it was so understated and so well used within there. It's not the typical way we think about steel guitar playing. It was very understated. And it took me a while before I got the nuance of that, oh, that's a steel guitar yeah. making that sound.
2: Well, Marty does it all. He he can play as much or as little as you want. Like a lot of the guys on the record, I talk about playing the song and, and making it happen uh, with what it needs. Um, Marty's a, a fantastic player. He's got a great solo album out called Before the Dawn. For any of the pedal steel lovers out there and marty's a day job when he's he's playing with robert earl king and uh floyd domino has played a bunch of people but he's playing with merle haggart right now so um
0: and he was also like the original piano player for sleep at the wheel yeah, back he did in the a lot days, of stuff right? with them
2: george Strait. yeah uh he's a, just a fantastic gifted pianist and, and marty and him both got the song maybe part of the reason i wanted them to be on this song we had a lot of talk about about what the song's about. And uh, Marty said, uh, this is one of the best baseball songs I've heard. And uh, I said, yeah, thank you.
0: Well, it's a brilliant song. And let's listen to a little bit of that with our listeners. And we'll be right back here on the Atticus Report with more of our conversation with Stephen Doster and his album, Arizona. Right now, let's take a listen to the track on that album, Throwing the Ball.
1: Hot summer day sun is beating down but the water is cool kids playing catch by a sycamore tree blue sky will
0: Before we get out of here, this conversation's gone so quickly. Our time is almost out, and we still got a little bit more to go here. So I want to turn our attention back to this particular track, Throwing the Ball, has a very nostalgic kind of quality to, to it to me. And it reminded me, as we were listening to the track there, it reminded me your record, Arizona, was released in November 4th, 2014, I believe, was the date that it actually came out, even though the U.S. official CD release wasn't until Valentine's Day in 2015. Yeah. You released it much earlier for a very specific reason on November 4th. Tell us why you chose that date.
2: Well, that date was a birthday of a friend of mine named James Honeyman Scott, and he uh, he was a big influence on me. I. The last year, James passed away in 1982. And at the time he passed, he was working with me and producing me a record that never got released because of his uh, death. But uh, meanwhile, I learned a lot about music from James. He was a lovely human being. Anyone who's heard The Pretender's uh, early music knows his part of that was huge. Sometimes uh, it was a... Big part of the the sound.
0: Didn't that experience, did uh, that kind of led to sort of a producer's life for you in some way, shape, or form? And we haven't really talked about Stephen's producer credits here to our audience. They should know Stephen has produced over 70 records for other artists over over time and everything and that's quite a quite an achievement you know Mm -hmm. know, we could have a whole other conversation about some of these records that you have produced and the artists that are involved in those just a wonderful wonderful eclectic array of uh, records mine included and i'm like really happy to be among that list strawberry moon but strawberry moon that's right but i know know that that influenced james's death at that point in time you were kind of like on the rock star track or whatever so to speak and everything and his death not only was it a major influence, major trauma maybe in your life at the time? But it kind of puts you on a trajectory to be a producer.
2: Well, as I was singing in that song we just played, trying to make sense of it all. And you try to figure out what was the, the best lesson here. And uh, when I met James, uh, I was just writing and singing and doing what a lot of people do. They're kind of uh, when not paying attention to uh, what other people are doing. And uh, he taught me how to listen in a way I never had. We'd be talking about anything, a Carpenter's record, and he'd be going, isn't this incredible? And I'm going, it really is. Do you, you like it where the tambourine plays here? And I don't know where the tambourine comes in. I, I'm not listening like that. And he did listen like He listened that. very deeply. He was an arranger yeah. and yeah. a producer at heart. And I felt that about him when I heard the records. I knew what a big part he played in them. But uh, it was... Uh, uh, he was a Beach Boys fanatic, and Brian Wilson was his hero. And I would go to visit him or pick him up because he didn't drive a car. <laughs> and uh, he would have two, instead of headphones on, he'd have two speakers held up against his, both his ears, listening to Surf's Up by the Beach Boys. It <laughs> looked like he was having an orgasm. But.
0: Well, you know, it's great, it's great that we're having this discussion here at the sort of getting near the end of the program here because the last track on the album, mm-hmm. End of the Night, We've talked about this before, there's a very dirge-like quality to the music that's going on there. And I've confessed before that this particular song of the songs on Arizona was the last one that I kind of came to and warmed up to. At at first I didn't really get it, but the more I listened to the record and its place in the record, Mm. I realized it's the perfect Album closer. I'm, I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. that. What's the first track on a record, mm-hmm. and what's the last track on a record? You can start strong and not finish strong, and you actually do finish strong. Even though this particular song is kind of a grower, you know, a slow burner, but it's dealing with the ultimate question and the ultimate destination for us all. You know, this this, this sense of the mystic comes back into this again, mm-hmm. and also you know, questions of life after death and the whole birth, death, life cycle, and everything. Everything wrapped up in this thing. It's a very thoughtful thoughtful closure to this record and before we take a listen to it you know what would you what would you say about this track like where did, what, what were you thinking when when this happened
2: well i did uh was influenced by uh, people leaving this world that's what i was thinking of and uh especially at this time in history we've been having a lot of that happen and just recently david bowie Lemmy, glenn um, fry glenn fry, and natalie uh,
0: cole is a whole natalie cole and uh we've also talked about Scott Weiland and everything. You were a big fan Wellen. of his work. Yeah.
2: I, I was. I thought Scott was a great front man. He was, just had it. And uh, I've actually uh, spent a lot of time recently listening to him. But I would be remiss not to pay my respects to New Orleans great Ellen Toussaint, who he recently lost as well, um, a true American master, songwriter, pianist, and arranger, as they say, one for the ages. Absolutely about that one. I'm with you on that. Rest in peace.
0: Rest in peace to all of them. That's a great closure for the record. It's the ultimate destination for us all.
2: When I wrote this song, I uh, was thinking of, of that, and maybe it is a, a, when doing the record. That's why I wanted to put it at the end of the record, because eventually you know, our time here is fleeting, and eventually we all go that way. And uh, I'm more and more, uh, I like to quote, Warren Zevon enjoy
0: every sandwich enjoy every sandwich indeed perfect segue for us to listen to the final track on Stephen Doster's Arizona the closing track into the night let's take a listen we'll be right back after the musical break to wrap up the show and tell you what's ahead for the Atticus Report
1: sail into the coming.
0: Life It Swings on a Thread, what a beautiful, beautiful lyric, and isn't it so true? And this year when we've lost so many of our great musical greats, been so much part of our life and lost them so quickly in succession there, hmm. this is a, a really apt ending to this show and ending to this record and everything. Stephen, congratulations on a brilliantly done record. Thank you. I want to tell our listeners that we... There's one more song on Arizona that we have not featured yet in this program. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to tell you what's ahead for The Actors Report. On the next episode of The Actress Report, we're going to be traveling to Halifax, Nova Scotia, to visit with songwriter Lisa Burt and talk about the songwriting scene up in the Nova Scotia area. It's quite vital, actually, from what I understand. We're going to have a great time talking with her and also talking about the Canadian songwriting tradition. So be on the lookout for that episode of the Attics Report. Steven, on the way out here, I want to tell our listeners that this last song from Arizona that we didn't feature, is actually in the first half of the record, It's a song called Your Simple Mind. We chose it as the theme music for the Attics Report. So you'll pretty much be hearing parts of Your Simple Mind in every episode of the Attics Report for the foreseeable future. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about that song. This, has, this is one of those songs, I know the story about this song, we talk about it to where the song that you reference as a touchstone or an influence or an inspiration for this song sounds nothing like this song. Uh, There's an interesting turn there about how, how, how different kinds of things come out in songwriting sometimes to where you think it's going one way and then it takes another turn. It's interesting to hear about the influence. Tell us about that.
2: The influence of, of this song was a song called uh, The Inspiration for It was a song called You Don't Miss Your Water Till Your Well Runs Dry. And I first heard the song on a Bird's record, uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And I just thought it was an excellent uh, idea for a song about taking people for granted. And uh, about a a guy who's a playboy, and he he, uh, goes, in the beginning, you really loved me, but I was blind and I could not see. But since you've left me, oh, how how I find you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. And uh, I just so the that,
0: version we're off the one I'm familiar with, and I think the one you were initially familiar with was when Graham Parsons was with the Graham Birds Parsons on "Sweethearts City. of the Rodeo." And yeah. that version, which is completely yeah. different than the origin of where it really came from, It was
2: more of a blues song. I heard that uh, William Bell wrote that song, and I heard that when I heard the real version, I was very surprised that it was oh, it's an R and B song, but just a great idea for a song. And so I was writing a uh, kind of a pop rocker, and uh, that idea came into my mind of writing. My version of a taking of a person who's not going to is taking someone for granted.
0: Well, so to all your listeners of the Atticus Report, remember that to like go back and listen to "You Don't Miss Your Water" by the Birds, off a of "Sweetheart of the Rodeo," and then cue up this next song, "Your Simple Mind," and try and figure out how Stephen got from there <laughs> to this. That's going to do it for us on the Atticus Report. I'd like to thank our guest, Stephen Doster, for coming in and talking about his record, Arizona. You can find that record, by the way, at stephendoster.com. You can also find it at atticusrecords.us. Atticusrecords.us. Look for that record. It's also everywhere available on iTunes, Amazon, everywhere else. Pick it up. Great record. Stephen Doster's Arizona. Thank We'd you. We'd also like to thank our... Uh, Our engineer today, Monty McWilliams, for helping us out with this episode. Lisa Burt for staying with us here in the studio. We're going to be cutting the next episode with her here real shortly. Be sure to look for that in a few weeks. The Attica Support. we've had a great time. I'd like to thank our staff. Kiana Shantese, our website guru, and Carolyn Soames, who handles our social media for us. Stephen, until next time, it's been a great pleasure being here with you and talking about Arizona. Hope you had as much fun as I did. I loved it. Peace and love, everybody. And thank you for listening to the Atticus report today the Atticus report is produced by DBM entertainment at North Fork Studios in Beaumont Texas you can find us at atticusreport.com that's atticusreport.com share us follow us on Facebook we've got lots of great shows planned for you I'm your host Rick Busby and be sure to tell your friends about the Atticus report the podcast about music that's good for something She's
1: She's gone in a she's gone